So continue the ministry of the word, turn with me, John's gospel, John chapter 10, we'll take up where we left off last week as we continue to make our way through this remarkable chapter, presenting, revealing to us Jesus Christ as the good shepherd. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Begin reading verse 22. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. As I said to you, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Thus far the word of God. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we rejoice that you are a God who has spoken In the former times, even as we've heard just moments ago, you spoke through the prophets of old. They were faithful men sent by you, and their words have come true. Indeed, words concerning your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, prophecies, great and glorious promises that are now fulfilled in him. Father, we rejoice that Jesus Christ, who is our prophet, priest, and king, uh, continues to speak to us when his word is preached. When it is read, we thank you, O God, that as we gather to worship you, that we could come to hear the word of the living God. And we pray, O God, as you have appointed this part of our service of worship, that you would bless the preaching and the hearing of the word, that you bring it to bear upon our hearts by the working of your Holy Spirit in all these things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you will know the names, name James Montgomery Boyce. For over 30 years, he served as the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, a faithful pastor, faithful in his labors to minister the word. This story is told that as he was preaching through John's gospel, even this 10th chapter of the gospel according to John, Uh, He was walking through the pews uh, later in the week, and he discovered a discarded bulletin laying in the pew. And Dr. Boyce opened it, and he read what was written there. It said, I am sick of Calvinism in every sermon. The writer was referring to the teachings of John Calvin, of course, the 16th century reformer, and the focus that he and others of that era have placed upon the doctrines of grace my friends and fellow, my friend and uh, fellow PCA pastor Richard, Richard Phillips notes that if you access the sermons of Dr. Boyce on this 10th chapter of John, you will discover that he never mentions John Calvin or Calvinism, never utters the words. The pastor of 10th Press was just preaching the word of God, being faithful to the text. So why do I point this out? Well, to underscore that the doctrines of the Reformation the doctors of John Calvin, indeed what he uh, was known for, were not unique to that era nor to him. And they certainly uh, were not original 
with him and the other reformers. The sovereignty of God, election, Christ's particular atonement were not invented by John Calvin. No, they originated with the Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ. and were part and parcel of all four Gospels in the New Testament, as well as Paul's epistles. Jesus Christ is the point of the whole of the Scriptures from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And God has revealed himself to be sovereign. It is God who saves, not man. We're going to take up this text under four main heads this morning. You find them in your worship guide. Spiritually dead, in that you might hear total depravity or total inability. That's what we're talking about. Saved by grace alone. Saved through faith in Christ alone. Safe and or saved and secure. Begin then with spiritually dead. The first thing we notice in the text as we read it this morning is that John has brought his readers from the fall of that year of AD 29 from October to December. We've, we've moved forward something like three months. It's the Feast of Dedication. It took part in the month of Kislev as it is on the Hebrew calendar um, that corresponds largely with our month of December. This feast celebrated the deliverance of Israel from the bondage that they were placed under after the inner, uh, the uh, military invasion under Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes. And when he came in and invaded Israel, he went into the temple and he set up pagan idols and defiled the temple. Israel had been there before. But it was their own doing in the past. Now, uh, this has been from outside, and they're seeking to be faithful. Well, God then raised up uh, a man known as Judas Maccabees, or Judas the Hammer. And he led the people in a revolt in AD 167, and they were successful. They drove out their oppressor, and they cleansed the temple, and they reinstituted faithful worship. And this feast then was celebrated beginning in AD 164, was often referred to as the Festival of Lights. It was a, a feast not appointed by God, and yet we see Jesus, you know, here is mentioned in temple in at that time. But it was similar. We've just had the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a feast of lights. You remember that we heard how there were these massive lights that were set up on the walls of the temple that burned throughout the week, and that's the Festival of Lights. This, too, was marked that way. And some of the Jews even referred to this feast that's before us, the Feast of Dedication, uh, as the Feast of Lights or the Feast of Tabernacles in the month of Kislev, making that distinction, and yet there were similarities in it. But they were celebrating that they were free to worship God. Well, we find also that uh, there was... This was in the month of December. It would have been a cold time, and thus we find Jesus in Solomon's porch. Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. It would have been an area sheltered uh, from the winds of that season. Um, as best we know from archaeological research and writings, this portion of the temple is a part of the original temple, the one that Solomon would have built. And when uh, there was the invasion in the 6th century B.C. and by Babylon and the temple was laid low in rubble, this portion of the temple, not necessarily a structure, but the porch itself remained. And when Herod, and well, later on under, um, forgetting which king it is, that uh, rebuilt the temple, 
and this port was there, and it was incorporated, and it remained even to this day, and thus the label of Solomon's porch, because it dated back to Solomon's temple. And this is where we find Jesus on that cold December day. It's the same place that we find in the book of Acts, where the saints would gather after Jesus' resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. And so John tells us that the people were congregated there. Jesus was walking in that area, and the, the people come around him. They surround him, and they conjugate, and they're pressing him with a question, how long will you keep us in suspense? Uh, the Greek here is interesting. It's, uh, I won't give you the raw version of it, but the sense of saying is, how long, how long do you keep us, literally our souls, our life, how long do you keep us hanging? We want an answer to the question. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. This is what they want to know. But Jesus has not kept this fact of secret. He's, but he has refrained in public settings from referring to himself as being in the Christ or the Messiah. We saw him back in John chapter 4 when engaged with a the woman there by the well. That she said, we know that Messiah comes. We know that the Christ will come and he will tell us all things. And then he very tell her, tells her very plainly, I am he. He speaks very directly and reveals that. But we see that in public settings, Jesus has not made such a statement. Why is that? Well, the idea of Messiah, Christ, the anointed one sent by God, was, was a, a term, a, a position that was politically charged. It carried more uh, political importance to the people than the reality of who he was, even as we see uh, him revealed to be uh, in the book of Isaiah as the one who would come, the Jehovah's suffering servant, one who would uh, suffer a, a death, a substitutionary death, a death not for his sins, but for the death, uh, a death for the sins of his people. But the people, they saw this Christ figure, this Messiah that they were expecting as a military position. And we've mentioned this before, that they were thinking when this one came, like David, he'd be a mighty warrior. And in their situation, he would drive Rome out and deliver them from the oppression of Rome and from the bondage that uh, was upon them. But that's not what Jesus was coming to do. You see, the problem was, for the people, they only saw physical bondage. And my friends, that's a problem for sinners today. They only see a physical bondage, physical suffering, physical uh, lacking, and they think of someone to rescue them from those things. But what is our greatest need? Well, the Scripture makes it very clear that our greatest need is that we are in bondage to sin. More than that, we are dead in our trespasses. We are under the wrath of God. We are under the curse from Adam's first sin, and, and then heaped on top of that is our own sins. And we deserve God's wrath. We deserve death and eternal death in the lake of fire forever. That's what our need is, and indeed, Jesus came to meet that need. He came uh, to die in our place. He came to be the Savior who could, could, who could and would rescue us from the fullness of the consequences of what Adam had done. But the people did not see that. Rome was the enemy as far as they were concerned, not sin and Satan. And so Jesus in public settings had not just straight out said what these people wanted them to do. They wanted him to say, yes, I'm the Christ. But what does he say? Jesus does answer them. He says, I told you. He said, I've already answered you. I've, I've, made this question, I've answered this question very clearly, very plainly. They want a straightforward answer. He's given it to him. 
Jesus moves then in the response to this to one of the most foundational documents, doctrines concerning humanity after Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. Verse 25, Jesus, I told you, you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. And we've seen that over and over again. We'll see more of it that Jesus says, I'm doing the will of the Father. Unlike the first Adam, I'm obeying the Father completely. As the second Adam, he doesn't call himself there. He's the son of man. But he's doing the will of God. He's obeying God in every way, shape, and form. As the man, the son of man, in his humanity, he obeys God. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He does what he sees the Father doing. He speaks what he hears the Father saying. He says, I've told you plainly. And if you didn't hear my words, of course, we've seen, that is, he's made it clear that the Father sent him, that he's one with the Father, that he's the Son of God. He's, all these things have been clearly set forth. They, multiple times, have been ready to kill him. We'll see that even at, at the, uh, the, in the next passage, that this is what they're determined to do. But then consider the mighty works that he's done. He says this, I told you. And you do not believe. And the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness to me. A few chapters ago, we looked at the fourfold witness to who Christ is. There was a superabundance of evidence that he is the anointed one, the, the one sent from God. But what's the problem? What is it that Jesus focuses on? You do not believe. That's the problem. That is right at the heart of it all. This is the kernel of truth. This is the reality All this evidence, his words, he's the living word, he is the word of God made flesh dwelling amongst them. He is the one who is doing the will of the Father. There's the abundance of not only his words but his works and they do not believe. They will not accept his words. It's significant how he says this in the original Greek language. In Christ, we know that as those who believe upon Christ, we become children of the Father. And we are then entitled to, to call him Father. The Spirit in our heart teaches us to cry out, Abba, Father, to call God our Father. But Jesus is not speaking of that here. He, uh, in the way he says this in the original language, he speaks in such a way that he distinguishes himself from us who receive God as our Father because of the completed work of Christ and our faith in him. He is the Son of God, and God is his Father uniquely, even as we saw earlier, he is the only begotten Son of the Father. We're not begotten of the Father. We become children of the Father. But Jesus, before all eternity in the time past, is the only begotten Son of the Father. We are quite far from God because of sin. We're dead in our sin, dead in our trespasses, a place far from God as well as rendered unable to do anything about it. We are not able to do anything about our condition of sin, nor are we interested in doing anything about our sin. We're in rebellion against God. We want nothing to do with God. And that would even include those who go through religious formalities and uh, present themselves in an air of being a good person, but ultimately... We're far from God apart from Christ. The reality is, and we've seen this before in John's gospel, we are spiritually dead. And therefore, in our inner man, unable 
to do anything. And this is the condition of those who are asking Jesus, even demanding Jesus to tell them what he's already told them. But what does Jesus say? He says, you don't believe. He's speaking of the total inability, the total depravity. They are spiritually dead. They have no ability. You think about how with Jesus' I am statements, he has made it known that he is no mere man. He is the promised one. Uh, You remember back when we begin John's gospel, and John the Baptist goes forth, and the people see there's something remarkable about him, and they're wanting to know who is he? What what authority does he come with? Well, he's, he's a prophet of God. He's been sent by God, and he's anticipating, or he's heard what they've been saying, and he says, I'm not that one, the, the prophet that uh, Moses so many thousand years ago had prophesied that God would raise up from their midst a prophet greater than him. John says, I'm not that prophet. Whereas Jesus is that prophet. He is the one. In John 8, he said, and there's an exchange in John 8, 23 through 25 that I want to refer to. He tells them, I am not of this world. That's a a remarkable statement. And he goes on to say, I'm not of this world. I am from above. When you consider that these are the Hebrew people, they have the Hebrew scriptures, they've been taught the things of God, they know of the Messiah, they know uh, what he will do, and at least what is revealed through the prophets. We've made known that they have a different idea what that means. But he says, I'm not of this world, I'm from above. He's making it clear. He goes on, he says, and I said to you that you will die in your sins, for you do not believe that I am he. You will die in your sins. He tells them that twice. Then they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. Jesus has made it very clear who he is. He's been sent from God. He is the fulfillment of all the prophecies. You know, all three of his offices, the prophet, the priest, and the king, he is the one that has come. The evidence is everywhere. He goes on to, and he makes those remarkable statements. Uh, there's the host that is gathered before him, and he's fed them bread, and he says, I am the bread of life. And he's, remarkably, he's declared, I am the light of the world. In addition to his clear teaching, he's done mighty, mighty works that have testified that He is who he says he is. The works of God make it clear, the works that he's done make it clear that he's been sent from God. He's not a false prophet. He's testified over and over that he is going to do all that the Father gave him to do. He's been doing so. And the very fact, remember how we ended in in verse 21, the very fact that he opened the eyes of a man blind from birth. Even in that controversy in the previous section about him being a good shepherd, there were those of the Jews who said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Tremendous evidence, both in his word and in his works. And yet, what does Jesus say? You do not believe because you're not of my sheep, as I said to you. When a sinner does not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation, it is a proof that that one is separated from God. His sins separate him from God, keep him from God. As Jesus uh, or John records back in John 3.18, they're condemned already. The reality is we come into the world as sinners. 
So even a small child who is apart from Christ is condemned already because we must be hidden in Christ. We must have Christ's righteousness on our account. And apart from that, we're already condemned. It's not like we come in as a clean shape, slate, you know, innocent. We sin, and we are sinners, and we are born dead. We are condemned already, and there's no ability to be found within us. And so Jesus says, they're not my sheep. Because my sheep hear my voice. There are those who are the elect, and we use a theological term, there are those who are reprobate. And what does that mean? Well, all sinned in Adam, right? In Adam we all sin, and we all died in him. We're all condemned. We're all guilty. There's not one of us righteous, no, not one. Remember Romans 3 we were at some time ago. No one seeks after God. Our our mouths are like an open grave. They're full of the viper's uh, poison. That's what we are. And yet God has had mercy on some and not on others. God chose a portion of humanity according to his wisdom and knowledge, hidden in the four counsel of his will to be part of the elect, those who would be Jesus' sheep. That's what Jesus is teaching here. We often would refer to election, who coined the term, as a family secret. It's not something we run around preach. preach. You know, I wouldn't go up to a, a city center where people are milling about and say, you know, God has elected those for salvation. If you're elect, come to Christ. That's not where we begin. But as we study the scriptures, we find ourselves in Christ. We Eventually we discover, even as we're hearing this morning, that there are those who are Jesus' sheep and there are those who are not. There are those appointed for salvation, those whom the Father has given to the Son, those who are elect in Christ before the foundation of the earth. My friends, it is not a doctrine thereby we would celebrate and boast of ourselves. We're amazed that God would appoint me, even me, a sinner for salvation. That God would choose me not of any good in me. As it says elsewhere, God says of his people, not many of you were wise, not many of you were powerful, not many of you are wealthy, you know, we could go on with it, you're not good looking and all those things. That's not the basis upon which God appoints us for salvation. We don't know what the basis is. It's according to his foreknowledge, his wisdom. It's hidden with God. I don't know that we'll ever understand that. It's a family secret, though. It is something that is revealed in Scripture. God has appointed for salvation, some for salvation, and he has passed over others, leaving them in their condition of sin and misery. I've had conversations along this line with people, perhaps some of you have as well, and there will be those who proudly argue, that's not fair, that's unjust, that God would do that. You want God's justice? All sinners perish. That's justice. What we're seeing here is even as our elder opened with this morning, God's mercy. God is a God of mercy. And he is appointed from some for salvation. Don't deserve it. They deserve his wrath as much as the others that are left in their condition of sin and misery. Indeed, if God, if you want God to be fair, all perish. But God has chosen to have mercy and to please God to save some through salvation by a redeemer. And who is that redeemer of God's elect? It is the Lord Jesus Christ, uniquely appointed, no other like him. And so when Jesus says, 
You do not believe because you're not my sheep. If you don't believe, you're not a sheep of Christ. Now, that's not to say that you, know, you might be a child. You're beginning to understand these things, and you might say, well, I don't believe right now. Does that mean I'm not a sheep? You know, God calls people to himself at different times in their lives. He will call with that effectual call of the Spirit. But these people are, are hardened. They're against Christ. They refuse to believe because they're unable to believe. They oppose him. They resist him. They reject his message of mercy and salvation to be found in him alone. Why is that? Why are they so hardened? Why are these religious leaders, the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, why are they so hardened? They're not appointed for salvation. Now, we also have to remember that time is still elapsing. We do find later on in the book of Acts that we're told that many of the priests believed. There will be those that would believe. But indeed, Jesus' words are true, that there are those who are not his sheep, and therefore they do not believe, they cannot believe, because of the complete inability of being dead in our trespasses. My friends, what I say to you is do not contend with God over his plan of salvation. We have nothing as sinful humanity to offer. We have nothing with which to bargain with. We had no way by which we might be saved, nor were we interested in God's salvation. As sinners... We hate God and we're rebellion against God and we would flee from God. Praise God that he has sent a shepherd who goes out after us. And indeed, if you hear the call of Christ, the right response is to heed his call. We'll see more about that in a moment. And so here's this condition. They don't believe because they're not his sheep. They're not able to. Total depravity, complete inability, dead in sin. But what we find Jesus also teaching is that we're saved by grace. Now you might say, preacher, you just told us that apart from Christ we are dead in our sin and unable, even unwilling to do anything about it, so what is a sinner to do? That's a very good question. What can we do since I'm dead in my trespasses? Well, the answer is that Jesus teaches us we cannot save ourselves. We are not Jesus' sheep because we believe. Hear me clearly here. We're not Jesus' sheep because we believe, and we are not saved By faith. There's common misconceptions. We hear, oh, I'm a person of faith. Just believe. Even Christians I hear when they're talking with the media say, well, you know, I'm a person of faith. And they might talk about God. But it grieves me when they don't talk about the Lord Jesus Christ because there's no other name under heaven by which men may be saved but by the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we understand? God saves sinners. God saves sinners. Faith doesn't save sinners. God saves sinners. God saves sinners by and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God is a merciful God. God is a God who gives gifts. He has given us the greatest gift of all. James says that he talks about him being the father of lights who comes down every good and perfect gift. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. God saves because he sovereignly gave his son to be the shepherd of his sheep. And God changes the heart, the heart of sinners, by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's all of God. God has done this all. So if we hear God's voice, if we hear Christ, if we hear the good shepherd calling us, what does that mean? We're his sheep because God has given us to him already. That lies behind it all. And we hear him because God has regenerated and made us alive. We were dead. God has made us alive. The Holy Spirit has done that. 
God has done everything in order to bring us to salvation. It's all by grace. Look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, Jesus has just said, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. That's why you've not heard his voice. He says, I've told you. You don't hear it. You have not heard it. But now he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You see, there is the work of God's grace. We believe believe because God acts upon us as sinners. He gives us salvation, his son. And in the process, he gives us faith so that we become partakers of this salvation for that which God has done and that which God gives is received by faith alone. Ephesians 2.89, very familiar pastors, I hope, to all of you. For by grace, grace is a gift. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. It, too, is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. We have no grounds for boasting. Those who are Jesus' sheep, those who have heard his voice, those who uh, follow him, it's because he knew them, he called them, he worked in them. It's the work of God. It is a salvation by grace. And Jesus says in verse 28, he makes it clear, I give them eternal life. wonderful words. The God, the God who is holy and righteous and just, the God who has been offended because of Adam's sin and all of our sins, this God mercifully gives life. I have given them eternal life. It is a gift. Salvation is by grace, a gift of God, presented by God. Even as Jesus said back in John 3, talking to Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. He says, how can I do that? You can't. There's not one of us can, of an inner of ourselves, be born again. He says, you must be born of the Spirit. You must be born from above. This is the work that God does. God does this to save sinners. And our only response is, nothing in my hand I bring. My hands are empty. I have nothing to offer for my salvation except uh, righteousness is but filthy rags. God gives the gift of salvation. It's not owed. It's not deserved. It can't be earned. It is purchased by Christ and given by God freely. Remember where we begin. There are those, I hope it's not one of you, but they have a problem with Calvinism. If you have a problem with Calvinism, then you have a problem with Jesus. Because as I said in the introduction, it doesn't begin with John Calvin or the Reformers. What happened in the Reformation is they searched the Scriptures and they rediscovered these truths. They were there all along. This, this is the way it's always been, and they recovered them. And it was a blessing to the church because those people of that era, they were told, do, 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 and, and you'll never do enough. Pay, give, it, just keep doing, and, and maybe, just maybe you'll make it to heaven. That's what the church was offering. How wicked. And God raised up me, and God was giving again. He raised up men and he opened their eyes. He gave them eyes to see and ears to hear the testimony of the scripture that salvation is by grace. It is a gift of God, lest any should boast. Look at verse 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. When Jesus says, my sheep, that's God's election. My father gave them to me, he says. Hear my voice. That's the effectual calling of the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I know them. Now, this might be a little stretch, but what he's saying is, I know them. It equates to our justification in him. He knows our sins. 
He carried into the cross because he carried our name upon his head. He knew what our sins were. He carried them. He paid the penalty for our sins. Jesus knows us because the Father gave them to us. He knew that we were sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. He knows us. He redeems us. And he brings us to the Father who then adopts us. Thus, in Christ, we are justified. He says, I know you. And I've done everything for you. Everything to save you. Everything to redeem you. It is all of God. And Jesus adds in, I will give them eternal life. And there we have the doctrine of glorification. We enjoy it now, but there's already that not yet. We have the already, eternal life, but the not yet. Then when we'll be glorified, when this, then this flesh that we live in, that is such an adversary to righteousness, is it not? Such an adversary to, to faithfulness, obedience. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 7. There's, there's a law in my, in my flesh that's against the law of the Spirit, and there's this war that is within. And Jesus says, I will give them eternal life. He's talking about there will be the day when this fleshly body will be incorruptible, no longer able to sin, and we'll be fully glorified in the presence of God forever and ever. Jesus' doctrine right here, there is no room, not even one square millimeter of room for Arminianism. Arminianism that is humanistic, it gives room for a man to boast. There's no room for that in what Jesus teaches here. It's all of God, all for the glory of God, all accomplished by God, all paid for by God. You see, Jesus is not a Calvinist. That's a ridiculous statement. John Calvin just followed what Jesus taught, and so should we. Salvation is by grace alone, and it is through faith alone. Our third point, saved through faith in Christ alone. Jesus has been teaching that salvation is a gift of God, and so we should ask, well, how do I receive this gift? Pastor Rick Phillips uh, puts it very helpfully. I'm going to follow him here uh, with three points. I'm going to borrow his language. He says that we receive it because there's the faith of the hands. I'll tell you the other two. There's the faith of the hands, the faith of the ear, and the faith of the foot. There's the faith of the hand. We receive gifts by taking the gift from the giver. Children at Christmas, you know, or your birthday. What do you, your parents do? They, they hand you a gift. How do you get that gift? You extend your hand and you take it and you receive it and you welcome it. Did you earn it? Do you deserve it? Sometimes you think you do. You don't. Not really. But how do you receive a gift? It's, it's offered and, and, and you receive it. You, you just, it's the hand of faith. You take hold of it. Now, faith is not something that we can see or hold. It's not like we see a divine hand coming down and offer before us faith and we take hold of it. No, faith is true. But it's not something that we can see. It's not something that we may hold. And that's why the next two points are important. Verse 28, Jesus gives. I give them eternal life. It's a gift. And it's received by faith. We take hold of it. You don't reject the gift. You don't let your pride get in the way of accepting the gift. You accept that which God so freely gives. Lord, I believe. And we often will say, Lord, help my unbelief. We thank God because he gives so freely. But there's the faith of the ear. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. Right here, Jesus is answering the question that people asked. They tell us plainly. They said, are you the Christ? He says, you don't hear me. But see, with the faith of the ear, we do. What Jesus is saying plainly to them, if you're my sheep, you would hear my voice. You know that I'm the Messiah. You know that, you know that the Father sent me. You know that all that I've promised and said is true. You know that when I teach and preach is the word of the, my Father. That when you see the miracles that I've done, you know it's the will of the Father at work through me. You would know the, the, the faith of the ear. Those who hear 
and see. Have faith. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. How much more for that generation that had the word of God who lived and breathed and walked amongst them. Do you hear Jesus' voice calling you? Come. Just come to him. Respond with the faith of the ear. Just come to Jesus and come rejoicing. For he has given you ears to hear as well as eyes to see and a heart of understanding. Well, thirdly, the faith of the foot. Jesus says his sheep, follow him. Jesus is leading. So what a good shepherd does. His sheep follow him. You want to know if your faith is genuine? Then ask the question, do I follow Jesus? Am I following Jesus? What does Jesus say at the close of Matthew 28? He gives the great commission. He's about to send to the right hand of the Father, and he says to the church, collectively and in many respects to us individually, he says, go and make disciples. And what does a disciple do? He follows Christ. And part of that is making other disciples. As a church, this is what we're to be doing. And even as we gather for worship and the word is preached, we are seeking to be faithful with the preaching of the word of God. Are you a ready hearer? Do you come prepared to hear the word of God? Do you devote yourself to understanding it? And by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit working in you, that you seek to obey Jesus. Some years ago, our family lived in Scotland, and we would see the shepherds. They didn't lead their sheep by walking ahead of them. They'd had vast hills of with hundreds, if even thousands of sheep on them. And so the shepherd might have his sheep in with another man's sheep, or maybe they were distinguishing different parts of their flocks or reeds. But you drive around, and you couldn't miss. You'd see the sheep on the hill, and there'd be these big blue marks or these red marks. Those were the most common. There was this mark that was put upon the sheep so that the shepherd would know his sheep. Well, Jesus marks his sheep. He marks us on our ear, and he marks us on our foot. Christians are known by what they believe and what they do. By your fruits, you will know them. Are your ears open to the truth of God's word? Are you a ready hearer? Do you prayerfully seek to know what the truth is? Do you take up God's word and meditate upon it day and night? Do you delight in it? Is the, the word of God precious to you as it was to the psalmist that he celebrates so much in Psalm 119? I say that to you, I'm a sinner too, and I say, you know, I'm, I'm, I struggle with that. I work by the grace of God that the word of God's truth would be precious to me, more precious to me than silver and gold and all the things that this world says we should have, so that we would be, as it were, marked on our ear. And does your life show the fruits of righteousness by the way you walk, the places you go, the things that you do, the words that you utter? Those things don't save us. We're not saved by our works. We, we can't do good works apart from Christ. But if indeed Christ has worked in us, we will bear fruits of righteousness. And we should be encouraged to bear fruits of righteousness in dependence upon the Holy Spirit that Christ has given us. But fourth, we see that we're not only saved, we're saved and secure. You know, the, the TULIP anacronym or acrostic. Um, the last one is the perseverance of the saints. There's a security. All these gifts and blessings from the Father of lights come down to us through his Son. And so great is the salvation of God that he not only saves to the uttermost, but he keeps that which he has saved. 
We're precious in his eyes. I think it's in the, the Psalms that it talks about how we're like the apple of his eye. You know, we, we're very careful to protect our eyes, are we not? If something comes in, you, you block it, you know, and, and you know, the way God's made us, you know, if something's coming in, there's this ability to blink and protect the eye. It's, it's a precious part of our being. We're like the apple of God's eye. We're precious to him. Jesus shed his blood to save our soul. Without which God saves, he keeps. Here in the text, the very words of Jesus speak of this eternal security of the believer. He says, and I have given them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Furthermore, he goes on to say, my father who has given them to me is greater than than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Here again, you see what Jesus says very clearly. I and my father are one. We're at work in this together. The the Trinity, the persons of the the Godhead are cooperating together in our salvation. God is not a man that he should lie. God is not a gift giver that he would take that which he has given. When he gives us eternal life, he has given it to us. And it is done by him. And is kept by him. And it's not dependent upon us. It's all dependent upon God. Never. Shall never perish. My children were small. And throughout their lives, they, they heard me say this. If they were here, they said, oh yeah, he did. Oh, I, I, I told them frequently, being careful here, um, not always or never, but I told them frequently that never and always are words we use infrequently. We use them occasionally. How many times you say, well, I would never do, you know, whatever the rest of the sentence would be, and then you find yourself doing that. Or in an argument we say, you always do, right? And that's not true either. You see, never and always, those are very absolute sort of words. They're very final. Uh, they're, they're good words because of that. And so we need to be careful that we do not overuse them. And indeed, it's something we often do. But the reality is, it is uncommon for something to be that we could say it's never or that it's always. There's only a few things that are that way. And here it is comforting to know that God who saves sinners, he says, they shall never perish. Never perish. His love for us is an always love, an everlasting love, an eternal love. It's really when we come to God that we find these sorts of things that can be true because God is infinitely greater than what we are. He is God over all. And so when he says never, it's never. And if he promises always, it's always. Everlasting life in Christ is always and we shall never perish. What a marvelous promise. You know, we were talking earlier about the sheepfold being enclosed in and the shepherd would sit in, in the gap, as it were, the, the sheepfold out on the hills. Christ has done that and so much more for us. He keeps us. He does that which we cannot do for ourselves. My friends, we cannot save ourselves. We didn't save ourselves. It's the work of God. And we can't keep ourselves. It's the work of God as well. This is another part of the good news, that God who secures our salvation is the same God who certifies it, guarantees it. It is his promise, and he cannot lie. I think of it like this. I think of the Father's hand. We're in the Father's hand. And then Jesus, with his blood and his righteousness, he covers us. And we are there enclosed within the 
the hand of the God who ultimately we understand he doesn't have hands. God does not have body parts. Now we know Jesus the Son is fully united to our humanity now and forever. But these are, are word pictures. These are metaphors. They are images. And the reality is there's no more secure place than what Jesus refers to being the Father's hand or his hand. It is a place where ultimately we are secure because the God of all creation is the God of all redemption, and he has covered us with the righteousness of Christ. So the Father looks upon us, and he sees us in Christ's righteousness. He sees the perfections of Christ. It's not that he's unaware of who we are and our struggles, but when it comes to the realities, he sees us in Christ, and we are secure. You walk out of here this afternoon and you sin, you are secure. You'll never perish. The love of the Father is infinite, eternal, and unchanging. You're always secure in Christ. Well, what do we say then in conclusion? We're going to ask the question, are you safe and secure? We've made reference to this earlier. How can I be sure that I am safe? We all know those who were once with us. They've gone out from us. We know that as a congregation in particularly. I'm not talking about people who move their membership things like that, but those who've walked away from the faith. It gives us pause. Well, I walk away from the faith. Maybe you've had a season in your life, as most of us had, where we've, in some sense, walked away from the faith. We've been going contrary to the will of God. We've been walking in opposition to his commandments. We're going about our own business and not the will of God. Remember, Jesus had 12 disciples. One of them betrayed him. And another one of them denied that he knew him. With oaths and cursing three times. How do we know we're saved? Well, the difference between Judas and Peter, who I've just referred to, is what does Judas do? He just keeps on running. He has no hope in Christ. He's trying to find his own solution. His conscience is smiting him. He is guilty. He has betrayed the son of the living God, the one who he walked with for three years. He's the one who heard him. He told him. He saw the mighty works that bore witness that he was the one sent by the Father. And for a host of evil motives, Judas betrayed him. He was the son of perdition. God's providence was appointed to him, but he acted of his own will. Peter returned. What did Peter do after he denied him the third time? Jesus looked at him and we're told that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. Tears don't save us. Tears aren't you know, acknowledgement of sin, but they certainly can be. And in Peter's case, it was. The difference between Judas and Peter is that Peter owned up to it. He came back. You know where I'm going here. It's a good quote. Dr. Reader's grandpa's statement, when you understand grace, and that's what we're talking about, when you understand grace, you fess up. You own it. And when you don't understand grace, you cover up. We've all been there. Covering up. Praise God that he doesn't let us go on. He pursues us. He subdues us. And he brings us to the place where we can fess up. We can own it. We can acknowledge. We confess. And ultimately, this is how we know that we are saved because of what God has done in us. 
But beyond that or underneath that, the foundation of our salvation is the promise of the word of God. God has made a promise that he saves, he saves to the uttermost. It is not dependent upon what you've done. The promises are yes and amen in God, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you resting on the promise of God? You're safe and secure. It's his truth. And indeed, if that's the reality, you will obey Christ. It'll be desire and your delight when you consider what you were and what you now are. You want to obey the one who saves you so that you never perish. Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, that as we were in a desperate situation, dead in trespasses and sins, completely unable, completely unwilling that you have stooped to save us. We thank you that the good shepherd has pursued all those and is pursuing all those whom you have given unto him so that we all would ultimately be found safe and secure in his hand. Father, we pray for that day when the last of the lost sheep of Israel will be gathered in. We pray, Lord, that you would bless the gospel to go forth with demonstration of the Spirit's power even today and the days that lie ahead, calling all those you've given to to your Son so that when the last one is brought into the fold, then the heavens shall rend and our shepherd shall come down and he shall lead us in the greatest possession evermore, from here into life evermore, out of this world of sin and misery, into eternal bliss in your presence forevermore. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.